Welcome to The Labor of Love, a podcast about marriage, family, and making peace with the people we live with. I'm Lori Leibovich, editor of RealSimple.com. In a recent Time magazine cover story, Time editor-at-large Belinda Luscombe wrote an article titled How to Stay Married and Why, in which she examined both the rewards and the challenges of modern-day marriage, as well as dispensing expert advice on how to stick it out for the long run. Belinda is here with me today, and she's going to talk about how marriage has changed over the years and what it takes to stay with the same partner, according to the sociologists, psychologists, and the number of therapists she spoke to for this great article. Hi, Belinda. Hi. How are you doing? I'm good. Belinda, you mentioned a lot of fascinating studies in this article, including one from Northwestern that found that marriage quality was really high, but only if couples worked really hard at their marriage. Can you talk about that study? Absolutely. And of course, this is this sort of $64,000 or sometimes even more question. We know, how do you make a high quality marriage? And one of the things that Eli Finkel points out in his Northwestern study is that, you know, there are some things about a marriage that not the partners can't necessarily control. Marriages are uh, much more comfortable for people who uh, don't have financial stresses. So people who are well-educated and have good jobs in a sort of stable and or a stable career, they're much more, um, they're easier if People, you know, have children or their partners who don't have major health issues. So there are some factors that you, you know, obviously you can't control. But the kind of thing that uh, Finkel was talking about was the ability to be a, have a partnership that was a team where each person was not, you know, cohabiting with another person and just engaged in this task of perhaps rearing children and keeping a house, but was in fact engaged in enabling the other person to be a more true to themselves and happier and a more perhaps perfect version of that person than even, the, you know, the spouse themselves realized. So that's, that's kind of complicated, but it's basically the ability to just be really, really good and loving to your spouse and to know how to do that. Okay. Well, I want to ask, how do you do that? What does that entail? Uh, you know, again, you know, there are many, many uh, theories on this, but some of the researchers I spoke to pointed to the number one thing being that you have to avoid any desire or inclination to express contempt to your spouse. So, you know, you're living with somebody, they have the same habits, you know, to begin with, you sort of ignore them, or they just grate you a little bit. And eventually, I don't know, the way they eat cheese, their habit of leaving the water out of the fridge, uh, whatever, it will really begin to grate. My favorite of my husband's, just to interject, is when he leaves his laundry on top of the laundry basket. <laughs> I think I think somebody could write a book on the leaving of laundry on top of the laundry basket. And then, and then there's a sub one, which is, no, that wasn't laundry, that was dry cleaning. I thought you would know that. Why did you put it in the laundry? <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. Keep going. So contempt, <laughs> contempt is bad. <laughs> contempt, is, contempt is a killer. And the problem with contempt, of course, is that its favorite condition for breeding, as I say in the time story, is familiarity. And it's impossible to have family and a marriage without having familiarity. So you have to actively watch, I think, 
the you know, actively keep the contempt out because it sort of creeps in. And one of the ways you do that, and then, you know, this is, you know, it's not new news in in a way that uh, Time magazine usually does new news, but it is, I think, newly relevant because of how much more difficult marriage is because of the outside pressures on it. And one of the ways you do that is you have to try to figure out what it is that makes your spouse feel loved. Like what, you know, there's a guy called Gary Chapman and his books, his series has been on the New York Times bestseller list now in the how-to section for eight straight years. I mean, it's an incredible seller. And I think that's because the stuff, you know, people find it really works for them, which is to understand what he would call the love language of your spouse. It's a kind of a corny name, but it basically is saying, you know, figure out what makes your, you know, what makes your spouse feel like you cherish them. And what are some of the things? I mean, I think something for some people, sex is more important for some other people. It's, you know, it's... Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, there are five that he identifies. Some is sex. Some is like acts of service when you do your spouse's laundry, when you, you know, when you remember that they like their water really cold, so you make sure it's always some in the fridge. Some or fix their, you know, fix their bike. Some of it, it's it's actually language, like talking, like uh, you know, when you answer me and talk to me and tell me you love me, that's important. For or tell me about your day or listen to me. For some, um, for some other people, it's touch, just you know, not necessarily sex, but just you know, hugging, grabbing a hand, you know, giving them a squeeze at the right moment. And I'm leaving one out, gifts. Another one is people love, you know, some people like little tokens of affection, a flower, you know, a a way of expressing, a tangible way of expressing love. And I'm not sure that he's narrowed down exactly the right five, although, you know, one shouldn't argue with eight years on the New York Times bestseller. (laughs) But but I think he, he is onto something with this idea of, you know, you look at your spouse and see what seems to make them happy, or not just happy, but feel appreciated. Let's talk about the role that parenting plays in marital happiness. Which um, is huge. Which huge. Is, the yes. role is huge, yeah. And, but what's interesting is we there's a new study um, of the life satisfaction of 22 Western countries, and America has the biggest happiness differential between parents and the child-free. Wow. So a lot of people with kids have very unhappy marriages. Why do you think that is? I think that is because kids are, you know, an absolute horrible time suck for a start. They're they're incredibly needy. And I think people think, well, I have this beautiful life with this one person who has needs that they can clearly articulate and whose needs I can figure out should I choose to. And, and then suddenly the both of you have to do looking after this thing that is just a huge needs vacuum and it will take up any time you have. So, you know, when kids are very small, there's the adjustment of that. Then I think there's also the triangulation of the relationship. It used to be the two of you and now it's the three or four or whatever, you know, the love, uh, the relationship and who has to be made happy within it is, you know, has a new partner and, and spouses who who used to get the full attention of, you know, their beloved now has to share it with a child. And then, of course, you know, there is people have enormous differences in the way they think children should be raised. Some are much more disciplinarian, some are a little more kind of uh, laissez-faire or gentle. You know, there's there's whole 
you know, some want to emphasize education. Others feel like that physical activity is more important. And this, the parenting styles is not something you can actually really understand until you've had the children. I've, I've talked to a lot of people who said, I thought I knew everything about my partner, and then we had kids, and I couldn't believe he or she did this or thought that this was the way to raise the child, that it's kind of can be a surprise. Right. And um, actually, if you do in, in those places where some people, you know, some countries and states, you know, you can fill out a questionnaire in advance and they can sort of say, oh, your parenting style is different. But even so, that's abstract. It isn't until you are arguing over this small, you know, human form and feeling really strongly that your values are being challenged, that you see how impossibly difficult it is when you both love the child and you have such opposing views of, you know, as to how to raise them. But I think also in America, the reason that the U.S. is so different and the study pointed out two clear things that make American parents generally less less happy than um, the parents in the other countries it looked at. And one of those was the cost of childcare, the average cost of childcare for a two-year-old child. So a child that is not a baby, so you can't really, you know, you have to look after them all the time. And whether or not there were sort of flexible family leave policies in place in that country. So obviously, no wonder we have the lowest. Right. Exactly. And interestingly, though, maternity leave was not a huge factor or paternity leave. So when a kid was a newborn, whether or not you could get, uh, you know, some paid leave was a small factor. Well, it was a significant factor, but it wasn't as significant as those other two. Because once you've used up your maternity or paternity leave, you know, you, the leave that you have right after you have the child, you know, you can get your life back on track and your career back on track, but not if you don't have, a, you know, an effective way that is not bankrupting or terrifying to look after your child. Interestingly, just talking about uh, the parenting piece of this is the research now shows, and I think, you know, you mentioned this research in your article, that we do know that for most children, it is better if their parents stay together. Of course, not if it's an abusive relationship or otherwise damaging relationship. But for kids, they do seem to fare better if their parents stay together. Yeah, this is a very tough one. This is a very tough one because you don't, you know, the, most kids who whose parents divorce, they're not, you know, they work out fine. But what what we're looking at here is the statistics overall of kids who end up um, uh, of kids from intact families, what they call intact families, and kids from what they call, I think, broken, horribly broken families. <laughs> Is that what they research so, term? <laughs> it's so it's and some of this, I have to say, as a caveat up front, might be the result of you know that people that divorce is often very impoverishing, especially for people who weren't wealthy in the first place or were not comfortable in the first place. So if a if a if financial pressure has caused parents to split, then they're actually also in worse financial straits after a split. I don't think to begin with a divorce ever makes anybody richer. Eventually maybe if a guy's a very high earner and doesn't have to pay, maybe, but that would be an exception. 
So, you know, it, the child is just worse off um, financially, and that may account for some of it. But it does seem that the, that the studies seem to suggest that, div, that a, you know, a children of divorce are much more likely to end up with a whole slew of, of problems than children not from divorce. You know, but those statistics, I like to say, are sort of blunt instruments. So I'm not saying you have to stay together for the kids. I really, I really sort of don't think that's a great uh, way to think about yeah. this. But I do, you know, that if you can stay married, then that will probably be better for your kids. Something you bring up in the, the article that I thought was interesting in light of Beyonce's Lemonade album and video, she in her songs, she talks very openly about the infidelity in her marriage. And there was a lot of talk and debate after the record came out about, well, should she stay with him? I mean, I can't believe she's staying with him, even though he's so clearly betrayed her. And you found in your article, too, that infidelity is not ending marriages in the way that we might think it does, that people are getting through that and building a marriage from that betrayal, but it's lasting. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure that I would go out on a limb and say that infidelities aren't mar- ending marriages. I think infidelity does end many marriages. Um, I think it's still, you know, especially if it's repeated infidelity, people, you know, even Jerry Hall divorced Mick Jagger eventually, I mean, you know, and he bought her diamonds every time, so, um, or allegedly, it's all allegedly. I think two things that were very interesting. One is that if you can work through an infidelity, then your marriage is often better on the other side. And that often a single instance of infidelity or, you know, a, a lot of the people that this gerontologist, um, a guy who talked to a lot of old people, Carl Pillemer talked to said, oh, you know, we had one problem early on, but we got by it and, you know, we stuck by each other. So it is, I think, possible to... it. It, that an infidelity is not a marriage ender, which I think a lot of people, you know, used to think it was. Let me back up. I didn't mean to say that infidelity is great and everyone can get through it. Um, I right. guess I meant to say that there seems to be a subtle cultural shift. And I was specifically thinking about, you know, incidences in pop culture where um, it's just not automatically a marriage ender anymore, nor right. do people expect it to be. And I think that's a subtle shift. That is a subtle shift. And another interesting shift, I think, is that that sometimes, and I think we see this a little bit with Hillary Clinton and some other political wives, that women are sort of considered weak if they stay, that she, oh, she could never get another man or she's so pathetic, she can't even stand up for herself. Or in, or, in Hillary's case, you know, people H- saying that she stayed with him for her own political right, um, right. ambitions and reasons. So. And I think that's that's regrettable. Um, and I think partly that comes from the fact that women now can leave a marriage much more easily, that Hillary, of course, does not need Bill to make a living. Um, she, you know... Or run and, for president. Or run for president. And, she, you know, she had perfectly fine Secretary of State, Senator Jobs, you know, and, and is a completely, you know, res- respectable, admirable person. Um and, you know, why would she stay with that horrible philanderer? She so doesn't need him. And I think, you know, what one of the things that 
is emerging from the research is, yes, yes, you're fine if you leave, but if you don't leave, that's okay too. Like, it's a choice you can make, and it doesn't mean that you're weak or that the marriage is a sham. I mean, certainly you can't say that Beyonce needs to be married <laughs> nope. to Jay-Z for her career. Because, <laughs> or for any reason. <laughs> for any reason. That she's, you know, so the fact that she sort of says, I, I choose to stay, I think is an incredibly empowering thing. What do we know from the research about the role sex plays in long-term marriages and happy marriages? Well, it's crucial, I think. (laughs) Very simple, it's crucial. And I guess there is no, you know, people say there's a magic number. There is not really a a, a, a magic number, although a A magic number of... of... Of how much sex a couple should have to be happy. They should have the amount that makes them both happy. So some people say, yeah, we have a lot of sex and they only have it once a month because that's how much they feel like. But a recent study did come out that would be good news for some and bad news for others, which is that once a week tends to be the kind of good point, the benchmark point for a happy marriage. Like if you're having it more than once a week, it doesn't seem to increase over. This is obviously averages. It doesn't seem to lead to it in a sharp increase in marital happiness. But if you're having it less than once a week, that, that does tend to be where, you know, it, it, it drops off. So that's the plateau, I think, once a week. And the other thing that emerged from the studies that was interesting is that people who are married actually seem to be having more sex than people who are single. And, and also that as they get older, and this is what I, I love this piece of um, this piece of research, they get more enjoyment out of sex. They, you know, the enjoyment comes back, especially among women. Why is that? Well, it, you know, the the study didn't necessarily go into why, but it might, that the sort of suggestions were that once the children were a little less demanding or it reached a certain age, then the wife had more energy and was less tired or that she felt like she had got her, you know, her life back. It might be that the couple has more time to, to sort of enjoy each other and therefore, you know, feel like they're in a position where the sex is sort of mutually satisfying. Um, it might be the other less perhaps optimistic is that after a certain amount of time, the male sex drive drops off a bit. And so the women are more satisfied with their sex life because it's, it, you know, the husband's bugging them less. So, you know, it basically just asked, how satisfied are you with your sex life? And the women said, you know, after 15 years and in, in, and even after 25, they said they were more satisfied than they were in the first 15 years. Belinda, you talked to a researcher named Carl Pilmer, who's at Cornell, who is really done a lot of research in talking to long married couples. And I wanted to end with you really telling the audience what we what we can learn from the people who have been married for years and years and years. What do we what should we glean from them and how did they make it last? Well, the first thing that Pilamer said was he was so surprised when he originally talked to these um, these uh, older couples because he wasn't originally going to write about marriage. He was just going to write about life. But all of them said that their marriage, that their long marriage was the most satisfying and sublime experience of their life. It was the thing that they appreciated most in their lives. And well, not all of them, but a significant 
caution. He was surprised. That's so sweet. He was surprised yeah, how much um, surprised. people felt like their marriage was, you know, one of the the best things about their lives. Do you think part of that is the the kind of feeling that you have when you're in the trenches with someone or when you've weathered things together that after looking back on a long, whether it's a career or a marriage or friendship, there's just this sense of not just accomplishment, but sort of, you know, real pride in having done all of this with this person. I mean, I think, first of all, we should say some of it must be selection bias because <laughs> the people who got, stayed married that long obviously had pretty good marriages. Um, right. But I do think you're right that I think there's something about learning about somebody. And and he talks about m- marriage as not an achievement like, you know, buying a car and now you have a car. He says it's more like a discipline, like learning to play the piano. You practice and you get better and you get better or learning to speak another language. You, you get better and better the more you do it. And so you kind of learn the other person and you learn their ways and you learn how to interact with them and be a team and and it's a discipline and sometimes it sucks and sometimes it's great and but in the end like running a marathon or being amazing at chess or you know being able to speak another language fluently it's it's a very satisfying experience and that's what these couples that's what these couples were feeling that they had they had achieved something that was worth the work they put in they also all not for the most part, what I gleaned was that they were all very aware and upfront about how much work it took. Right, right. I do think that in this kind of day and age we have now where, you know, you swipe right or you (laughs) fill out a questionnaire and you are promised this soulmate that you you will meet your soulmate and you will realize they're your soulmate and then you'll get married and everything will be happy. That that's a fairy tale. Literally, that's a fairy tale. That that you don't you don't meet a soulmate. You sort of make a soulmate over the the many years of being married. You kind of work out how to you know live with each other and 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 work with each other in a way that you do become a sort of true companion with somebody. Um, and as you go through, as you say, the trenches, raising children, whatever setbacks, looking after your aging parents you know, certain whatever health issues you deal with, the good and the bad times, I think it does become this kind of a thing that is greater than, you know, the sum of its parts. Belinda Luscombe, thanks so much for being on The Labor of Love today. It's totally been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Belinda Luscombe is an editor-at-large at Time magazine and wrote the recent cover story, How to Stay Married and Why. Thanks so much for joining me today on The Labor of Love. Email me your questions or comments, suggestions for topics and guests at tlolpodcast at gmail.com. I'd like to thank our producer, Kristen Meinzer, and our editor, Tim Einenkow. If you enjoyed the episode, please review and subscribe on iTunes, where you'll also find more podcasts from Real Simple. You can subscribe to The Labor of Love at iTunes.com slash Panoply or at Panoply.fm. I'm Lori Leibovich, and I'll see you next time on The Labor of Love. <laughs>